Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on September 4th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two great guests this week, Rachel Rabouchet and Scott Burris, both from Temple Law School in Philadelphia. Scott, of course, is a professor of law at the Law School, where he directs the Center for Public Health Law Research. He's also a professor in Temple School of Public Health, the author of over 200 books, book chapters, articles, and reports on issues including urban health, discrimination against people with HIV and other disabilities, HIV policy, research ethics, and the health effects of criminal law and drug policy. His work has been supported by organizations including the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Open Society Institute, the National Institute of Health and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome back to the pod, Scott. Hi, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Rachel Rabouchet is a professor of law at Temple and also serves as Associate Dean for Research, obviously being punished for something. She teaches family law, healthcare law, and contracts and is currently a co-investigator on two grant-funded research projects related to reproductive health, one housed at the Emory University Rowland School of Public Health and another funded by the World Health Organization. Her recent research also includes articles in law reviews and in peer-reviewed journals on relational contracts, prenatal genetic testing and genetic counseling, collaborative divorce, parental involvement laws, and international reproductive rights. Great to have you join us, Rachel. Thank you, Nick. I'm delighted to be here. So we are all looking forward to Temple Law's 2019 Law Review Symposium, which is entitled Looking Back and Looking Ahead, 10 Years of Public Health Law Research. And that is on September the 13th, if I'm correct, Scott. That's absolutely correct, Nick. And we are all looking forward to it. That conference is focusing on four topics that have been central to the work of the Center for Public Health Law Research, reproductive rights, the pharmaceutical industry, city level health policy, and the social determinants of health. If we can, let's leave social determinants aside for a moment. What drove the focus on those other three topics, Scott? Well, um, partly events and partly politics and partly, um, I suppose, are a little bit of tradition in the work that I'd been doing as the director of the center. So, you know, the politics has clearly been over the last 20, maybe even 30 years, um, pushing innovation in health law towards the local level. So in smoking, um, you know, in criminal justice, in other areas that, that matter a lot to health, even gun control to some degree, where there's been a kind of national or state level battle going on, cities have had a little more discretion to try things, a little more political space. So that was cities. The pharmaceutical category is something we all live with now, the mm. incredible impact of um, the widespread use of opioids on the one hand, but more broadly, you know, when we think about healthcare costs, we look at pharmaceutical prices. Um, when we think of population health, we have to look to the, especially when we think of equity in population health, we have to look to the impact of incarceration and criminal justice on Americans, particularly poorer and darker Americans, and that too is uh, something that has been tightly associated with drugs of one kind, one kind or another. So I'm guessing we should probably leave the reproductive rights question to uh, uh, to Rachel in a couple of minutes, but to, to focus in a little bit more on the city level health policy. When you say there's more flexibility there, and I'm guessing you're 
you're reflecting some great attraction in building city-level health policy. Is that where health in all policies comes in, or is it a lot more um, multifaceted than that? Well, I think we'd like to see health in all policies coming in at the city level. I I remain a skeptic on the uh, actual impact of the health in all policies approach, but I'm completely convinced that in you know at the city level where the rubber meets the road on almost everything that influences health, um, the old model of you know sort of having a transportation department and a board of education and a health department and an economic development agency. And if we were starting over, we would say, wait a minute, all those things are linked. And what we're trying to do is create environments where people can thrive, and they need all those elements to thrive. You can't, you know, you, if, you, if you have a house but you don't have a job, if you have a nice house but no place to have recreation, go outside, no place to buy your groceries, you know, and so on down the line. So clearly, health in all policies as a reality of how you make healthy cities um, is a really powerful, um, powerful factor. Um, there's also, I mean, I, I, to be really oversimplifying about this, you know, when we are regulating in public health, we're quite often regulating powerful industries or powerful interest groups. Mm-hmm. Um, powerful interest groups um, are powerful because they have a lot of money and lobbying moxie. Um, and that has pl- paid off for them um, in inverse proportion to the number of people they have to pay off. Um, not to put it too fine a point on it. <laughs> in Congress, you got 435 reps, you got 100 senators, and every one of them has 50 lobbyists um, and major contributors dictating what they do. Um, when you go down to the state level, well, now you got to cover 50 states. But with, um, you know, organizations, there are organizations that are helping um, industry and anti-regulatory forces um, make that kind of coverage. And quite often, it is possible to exert it, the traditional political influence through the democratic process, through the campaign contribution process, um, to to convince legislators, legislatures to um, to, to, to oppose um, health healthy regulations. Of course, there's also the fact that in a lot of states, and in my home state of Pennsylvania, you know, we fit into that group, rural areas and smaller towns tend to be more conservative about regulation and intervention than the big cities. So at the state level, the votes are different. You know, Philadelphia does not run Pennsylvania. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh together cannot run Pennsylvania. <laughs> but in the end, when you get to Philadelphia, when you get to San Francisco, when you get to New York City or Charleston or Austin, you know, you get to a place where you have a, a lot of people who are more open to um, regulation, are more concerned about health and health equity, and are perhaps less concerned, uh, at least, you know, in theory, with big government. They want government to make their towns better places to live, and they support legal interventions to do that. So that also means that the cities not only face the problems every day, but they have this political space to, to, to try something new. One of the challenges that we faced in, in Indiana, uh, particularly uh, with regard to uh, the opioid overdose epidemic, has been the sort of greater uh, devolution of powers to counties. And we have a very large number of counties in Indiana that have control over uh, individual public health offices and also jails. And that's quite a challenge when you are looking to uh, put in uh, syringe facilities, syringe exchange facilities, and so on. Yeah, I don't want to make local um, the, the the local always seem like a you know it's not a panacea to think locally. In fact, you know right now we're working on a 
some research on what's happened with syringe exchange law in the last uh, five years. And one of the things that's become somewhat more common is a requirement of local approval for a syringe exchange. And actually, in, in, in more progressive states like California and Massachusetts, that's been a barrier to syringe exchange, um, which has led to outbreaks in, in states that have syringe exchange in many places, but not where they need them, as in Massachusetts, because the, the NIMBY and, you know, or, or more conservative anti-needle exchange faction is stronger at the local level than it is at the state level. Um, and you certainly see that in, you know, we're seeing that in, in Indiana and in West Virginia and Kentucky, where um, you know, there's sort of been a state level permission for syringe exchange, but there's still a lot of local opposition. So, you know, as, as this, this always complicates discussions of preemption and localism versus centralism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of varies by issue um, and it varies over time. But, uh, you know, I think it's safe to say that it is generally good for um, health in a federal system to exploit those laboratories of democracy uh, of cities and states and to let them try new things. Indiana passed a, a syringe exchange law after the Scott County um, HIV outbreak that you might remember from a few years ago. But it does have um, at least two uh, problems associated with it. Uh, one, you have to have sort of certified that you have an HIV or other public health outbreak. And two, then the final decision as to whether to open depends upon local uh, consent. Plus, there's a two-year sunset on each one, and then you have to go through it all over again. What we were looking at in this paper, in part, is this recent uh, the recent trends in syringe exchange law. So, on one level, it's it's been good news. In the last five years, we've gone from 17 states in District of Columbia that, that explicitly authorize syringe exchange to 30. But some of these new ones, and Indiana's one, it's been a very grudging, limited approval. And you know, given that the CDC has identified a couple hundred counties across the United States that are at high risk of an outbreak of bloodborne disease because of drug injection. You know, these rules that hobble um, the introduction and maintenance of syringe exchange are really dangerous. What sorts of trends are you seeing in, in the types of syringe laws? For example, do a fair number decriminalize um, supplied paraphernalia if there's a later stop? Are there rules about identifying the paraphernalia as coming from the exchanges and so on? Exactly. That's where you. So first of all, we've got this. You know, in the in the thirteen new states, you know, we've got um, several who have this local approval requirement. Um, we've got the you know the continuing kind of sturm und drang or amb- ambivalence about truly legalizing syringes. Mm-hmm. So you know, the law across all the states um, is riddled with various you know caveats and limitations. You know, it depends. You know, we've legalized syringes from a pharmacy, but not necessarily from a syringe service program, or we've legalized syringes or decriminalized or provided immunity from prosecution for people if they announce to a police officer that they've got a syringe, um, and only if. So, you know, we we, 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 we obscure the, the message that it's perfectly all right, and in fact, the CDC recommends that you get and carry sterile syringes and use a sterile syringe for every injection. Instead, people are looking over their shoulder and wondering whether they can still get in trouble for having this life-saving instrument. Yes, and then we have to approach some of 
these issues, not really from a pure public health or paraphernalia decrim uh, perspective, but rather characterizing them as needle stick statutes to protect um, uh, law enforcement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a <laughs> that's like the least you can do. And, and, and we have had some states that have done the least. And it's, it's interesting to compare, you know, this trend with syringe exchange with other apparently similar in spirit and practice harm reduction measures. So in the, you know, in this period when we were very happy to see, um, you know, a dozen new states approve explicitly authorized syringe exchange in that same period since, you know, in, in five, in sort of five years, um, we've seen every state end up with a naloxone law authorizing distribution of, of naloxone. And, um, you know, we've had um, nearly all the states authorize Good Samaritan law. Um, so that you don't, you've, it, to some degree, you're protected um, from prosecution if you call in for help uh, at an overdose. So for some reason, we were able to to allow those harm reduction measures more broadly and faster uh, than we are syringe exchange, um, despite the fact that that you know syringe exchange has got such an incredible record of preventing or reducing. Um, a- epidemics among drug users. Yes, I don't know what the psychology is. Is it is it sort of institutionalizing drug use that people fear or reject? Sometimes I think it's the it, it's 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 that effect. At least something has to do with the fact that death from overdose is immediate and quite dramatic, and death from HIV is is distal <laughs> from hmm. the use of the needle. You know, so you just don't quite have that same sort of sense that if we had had the needle, the person who just died would not have died. Yeah. Although, in fact, that is exactly what will happen. If we have needles, people will not die uh, of, of, of HIV or hepatitis. All right. Well, I'm going to get back to you in a second and talk about some of the other issues that are going on in Philadelphia, particularly around the safe house proposal and so on. But Rachel, I know you've been doing some work in the reproductive health area uh, and looking at social determinants of health. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your project. I'm delighted that the symposium we're holding next week week in honor of the center's 10th birthday has focused on reproductive health um, and it really draws from the center's work on the abortion law project and that relates to work I've done thinking about the health implications of abortion restrictions generally and more specifically what is it about how we approach conversations around reproductive rights as lawyers specifically that may hamper or um, impede our efforts to really think about health consequences of, of laws that govern abortion, contraceptives, childbirth, the whole spectrum of reproductive health. So the panel, I think, will be a nice contribution to the symposium in that we have a great mix of legal scholars and public health uh, scholars who are going to think through empirical approaches to measuring what trap laws, which are the targeted regulation of abortion providers, uh, what, if, what can we say and what can we know about the health consequences of those laws, which you'll know, which you know, uh, is becoming increasingly important. Uh, it was very important in the um, Supreme Court litigation, the last word on abortion, whole women's health, where the Supreme Court mm-hmm. relied pretty heavily on public health research to demonstrate some of the health consequences that women face when they have to travel or wait, uh, delay their pregnancies because of the scarcity of abortion providers, the closing of clinics, problems with access. What's the sort of the 
the baseline, if you like, against which you compare the trap state? It's a great question, and there's been um, the again that I think that abortion law project's work is fantastic in this regard. A piece that they published about a year ago, which compared, for instance, provider requirements and regulation of surgical procedures that had same risk factors, same type of indications, uh, the same requirements of care, those regulations against abortion regulations and found across the board for very similar uh, office-based procedures, for instance, abortion is much more heavily regulated than other medical interventions, uh, than other office-based uh, procedures. And so it was. it's something that I think people who work in the area have known for a long time, but yeah. it was the first reliable measurement in my mind of of really the depth of difference in how we regulate very similar in terms of medical risk and medical benefit procedures. I assume uh, there is ongoing research as to the uh, implications for abortion rates from decreasing access to contraception, um, which certainly seems to be part of the, uh, at least part of the Trump policies not only with regard to Planned Parenthood, but more broadly. Right. Um, and that seems to be a, a real issue if, if you're committed to reducing the number of medical terminations. Right. Uh, the idea of, of reducing access to uh, contraception, either through direct government funding or by permitting through the new religious and moral objection post-Hobby Lobby mm-hmm. uh, rules, um, a- allowing uh, employers to uh, make essentially sexual health decisions for their employees. Right. A, biz- a bizarre uh, issue. <laughs> but then <laughs> we can talk a right. lot more about... Two plus two equals five. Didn't you know that, Nick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a great comment because it's something that public health folks wrestle with all the time. And interestingly, if you come at it from a, a legal perspective, there's, there's copious writing about the incongruencies between, uh, uh, between platforms that would prohibit or eliminate contraceptives and then political positions or policies that seek to also limit or punish abortion. Um, and uh, I recently read in the Indiana Law Journal a very interesting piece about why pro-life should be pro-life in a way of encouraging decisions other than abortion by encouraging other reproductive health behaviors around contraceptive use and reproductive care early in life, sex education, topics of that sort. And, and you know, in some ways, it's, it's, it's again, something that's, that people have thought a lot about and thought, well, right, if you're, if you're not for abortion, then maybe you should be for <laughs> things that avoid abortion. And I think it's just bound up in something that, you know, in a set of conversations around gender and sexuality and the mores of sexuality, of um, political commitments that are not about health, that are not about health outcomes, that are not about um, that are not about de- decreasing, increasing rates of abortion necessarily. That have a, a, you know are wrapped up in a much larger set of questions about political affiliation, 
about gender, about community, about political party. It's a it's a dissatisfying answer, but it, it, you know, we know that when people take you know when when the contraceptive use increases, abortion rates decrease. We don't know it with specificity in every place, in every time, in every location, but we know generally that abortion rates have declined in the country. We know generally that there are causal connections between better reproductive health care and the incidence of unwanted pregnancy and thus the incidence of abortion. Um, the, compl- the picture is far more complicated than that, but if it makes intuitive sense, it's because it makes sense. <laughs> Uh, and so I think that the work that public health law researchers are doing, particularly in legal epidemiology, is bringing some science to some of those intuitions and really and, and uncovering places where maybe our intuitions are wrong. Um, we certainly see that in the work that both Scott and I are doing at the global level. Is there Are there pockets of evidence that we've left unmined mm-hmm. um, that could tell us something interesting about what law and policy does on the ground through, through creating these causal links? these channels of what happens when you have, for instance, conscience objection, when you have gestational limits, when you criminalize abortion procedures, what is out there to know and how can we avoid presupposing the conclusion? Yeah, I think there's a, a the sort of that broader picture as well. I mean, um, as a health law, health policy person, mm-hmm. I know that public health is waiting down the uh, the dark street, waiting to pick our pocket, right, to put <laughs> money out of, cl- out of clinical care into public health. And I think think things that uh, we do in law and regulation uh, around contraception and abortion at the moment must just make you want to to double the number of people waiting to mug us and take the money away because clearly you must think we're crazy <laughs> no yeah no, it's, um, you know I've, I'm still I, it's it's something that I've it's an area that I've been invested in for years as a scholar but before in practice uh, from a health perspective and it, interestingly uh, that the point you just raised is something I still struggle with how to teach when <laughs> teaching these topics and explaining the confluence of different norms laws policies beliefs the melting pot of why the soup is so thick <laughs> yeah. it's fascinating and it's um it also says something about the culture we're in scott and i were briefly talking about um some of the opioid epidemic uh, fallout and i guess from both a social determinants of health and a structural determinants uh, question we're suddenly seeing a lot of questions in sort of the reproductive space about uh, nas babies neonatal abstinence syndrome uh, babies and i wondered uh, what kind of of uh, issues uh, maybe you're seeing uh, thrown up in, in, in that space or perhaps locally in, in Philadelphia. That's, I mean, it's, uh, and it's Scott, I don't know if you also want to uh, comment on, on this, but, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that I have thought a lot about in the broader context of penalizing prenatal behavior and the allocation of blame after birth for certain characteristics of the child born, of, of certain indicators of, of, of newborn health that 
blame is placed on the mother or when she's pregnant, the pregnant woman. And so I've really thought about it from that perspective. Are you doing work in Indiana? Our overall uh, research project obviously is touching on it. But at the moment, I think the the real question is trying to figure out some of the treatment possibilities um, and and also to, to think very carefully as to whether taking babies away from their mothers is a really good strategy. Well, the, yeah, there's deep writing about unintended consequences of those interventions that essentially penalize penalize mothers, but also penalize pregnant women for their substance use during pregnancy. That's been a fascinating topic. Well, it was just to say the same thing that uh, on the one hand, that it does seem like the weight of the evidence is going towards um, neonatal abstinence syndrome being a poor reason to take away a child from a mother who hopefully can get um, who can get treatment and, 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 and otherwise perform the, the functions of a mother but you know this is more this is part of I think this this enduring strain um, you know a hundred year strain at least of, of drug policy in the United States this this tendency to pull towards the punitive um, Leo Boletsky's got a nice uh, op-ed in the Times today about um, mandatory drug treatment or civil commitment for drug treatment that just basically becomes imprisonment down to people having to wear patients having to wear uh, uh, uniforms that say inmate on them um, and remain in places that are that are functionally jails um, we see this the, the this this trend towards not just taking custody decisions uh, because of needle natal abstinence syndrome but actually charging um, women with um, drug delivery to the child or fetal endangerment um, which goes along with the the you know the also this this increasing potentially increasing resort to drug-induced homicide laws for people who happen to be the drug user in a group that survived um, and, and arguably supplied the drug so I mean again this is if you think about coming back to Philadelphia and and our our uh, experience now with with trying to start a safe injection site safe house in all these instances the argument is somehow that if we don't punish we will lose control of the drug war or if we don't punish we're missing an opportunity to help somebody. Now, the evidence is just so compelling that punishment doesn't help. And as far as the argument that, that we have to maintain strict drug laws because otherwise we'll lose the drug war, you know, is the fact that um, we've never come close to winning a drug war. You know, since we start, you know, since the Controlled Substances Act was enacted in the 70s, um, heroin has only become purer and cheaper. Um, and that's just true across, you know, all our drugs. We never control drugs. But that, that sort of, for some reason, we just do not want to come down and kind of admit that and see what policy comes from, you know, from that admission. Well, we can we continue to pretend that deterrence is taking place when right. clearly it's not. Right. But I think there's sort of some deeper thing that you sort of touch on there, Scott, which is sort of some uh, need amongst some persons to find someone to blame. And if we can blame someone because they provided the drug or if we can blame a drug company and you know i'm fine with with compensation but but blaming people and looking continually looking for who we can blame during a public health crisis i don't think is is the way forward right and you there you go to our sort of social determinants panel <laughs> for this conference because you know what we should be blaming is inequality and a social structure that makes it too hard for too many people to thrive and i, I agree i mean and we have a very deep and long history of blaming pregnant women <laughs> and criminalizing their behavior. So just backing a step up, you know, you know, backing one step behind and, and thinking, well, 
yes, that there's a will to be punitive and we want to place that punishment on the people who we think are the most blameworthy. And in this context, it's it's often been through tort and criminal law and charging and assessing liability for uh, for pregnant women and the decisions they make during pregnancy. Right. And I mean, you know, when you talk about punitiveness, it's it's also sort of a very fickle and un- an erring finger of fate in that if we do want to have specific accountability for the opioid crisis, the FDA should be in jail and probably the DEA should be its cellmate. You know, <laughs> we, we, we should have known, FDA could have and should have known that a combination of unleashed pharmaceutical advertising and marketing and of opioids with a label that pretended with very little evidence that that there was no risk of dependency would be a disastrous combination. And the disaster was epidemiologically evident by the early aughts. Mm-hmm. The the you know the existence of pill mills and of mass distribution, which the DEA has the data to spot. It doesn't right. need prescription drug monitoring programs. It knows where every pill goes. Right. It's all in the Arcos database. It's all in there, and yet nothing happened. You know, just yeah. just you know, we we big raids. You know, in in futile attempts to stop illegal drugs from coming into the country in large amounts, um, and and really nothing done about this. So I I know our time is limited, Scott, but I must. Just- just ask you very quickly if you could give us an update on the safe house proposal on the litigation. As I, as I understand it, using safe house as the the organization here was designed to get around federal law to an extent. Is that fair? No, I think it was uh, it was it was uh, designed to get around a lack of spine on the part of the city <laughs> of Philadelphia. Really, the you know the strongest position is 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 like the medical marijuana position for a state to offer authorize it um, out of its, you know, sovereign power. And then you can invoke all the potential uh, sort of loopholes and, and, and interpretive canons that, that allow the Controlled Substances Act to indulge both federal and state dual authority. Cities have less authority than states in that regard, but there's still a few things the city could have done. And of course, it looks good when, when the government is saying we are exercising our public health authority, as, as many local governments did with syringe exchange. To fob it off onto a, um, a not-for-profit was to to start with the weakest form of authorization. Right? All you could argue is well, it's not really illegal. Could really couldn't really offer offer some kind of conflict or interpretive problem between public health law and and, and controlled substances law. Um, so that was not I, to me that was not a, a wonderful moment in Philadelphia history. Um, on the other hand, the, the 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 safe house people, including you know the chair of the board Ed Rendell, I think have been quite. Um, um, you know, forthright, bold, um, and have used every legal trick and every legal argument that they could possibly make um, to tell the story of Safe House and to reveal the, you know, the inanity um, of the government position from a policy point of view, and to make the strongest case possible for why the Controlled Substances Act shouldn't be read to prohibit a life-saving measure um, that in no way encourages or enables a drug epidemic. So let's turn to a high spot in the history of Philadelphia, or at least an upcoming event, which is on September the 13th, uh, your symposium, your birthday party, your legal epidemiology birthday party, I think, right? Just quickly um, from each of you, uh, something that you are particularly looking forward to celebrate or particularly interesting in hearing about. As a, as a tease for the conference. I think that it's it's a it's going to be a great group of people who are all thinking about ways in which legal epidemiology can really push forward innovative and interesting 
legal reform and different policy agendas across an, a wide area. So I'm really looking forward to the end of the day when everyone's listened to everyone else, gotten great ideas, energized, and has come together to talk about what's the future? What, what What's out there? The idea of legal epidemiology comes out of the understanding that public health law should be seen as a transdisciplinary enterprise, one in which non-lawyers play as important a role as lawyers. And the hallmark of this conference is a wonderful mix of lawyers and non-lawyers. We have, in addition to people like you, Nick, and, and, and Rachel and the wonderful Wendy Parmet, you know, great health law scholars. We've also got some really amazing empirical researchers. Jennifer Karras Montez, who's an amazing demographer, and Kelly Hall and Kelly Comro from uh, Emory, who are doing amazing work on reproductive health and on, and on the social determinants of health. And it's that mix of people who come from different areas but work together on law that I think characterizes legal epidemiology and is going to make this a great conference. And uh, I understand that it is already sold out, but that there is a live webcast. So if people go to the Center of Public Health Law Research website at Temple, they should be able to find a link to the live webcast and register there. There will be journal articles, I know, but if you can't wait for those, uh, it appears that Rachel and I will be uh, co-hosting a second episode of Twill with some of the speakers from the conference. So, Rachel, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to sitting down live with you there uh, in a week or so and doing that. I'm looking forward to it as well. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professors Boris Rabouche uh, for joining me. Rachel, I think you have refused to join the Twitter cesspool, as far as I could tell. Um, but Scott is at Scott Burris, P-H-L-R. And, of course, the Center for Public Health Law Research is at P-H-L-R underscore Temple. It was great fun having you you both on the pod. I really appreciate it. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Nick. See you next week. See you next week. So thanks to everyone for joining us. Show notes, of course, are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>